Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ben Bordak, CEO and co-founder of April, an embedded tax solution that's raised $40 million in funding. Ben, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and kick off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, fintech entrepreneur, uh, been in financial services and technology my whole career. I started at Deloitte Consulting, where I led a uh, pretty significant fintech practice there. And then the last several years, I've been building and scaling fintech and cybersecurity companies at a venture firm called Teammate. Deep background in intelligence and former military leadership, especially out of Israel. And got the opportunity there to incubate and develop a number of companies. One was uh, called Curve, uh, in the digital asset security space, which we sold to PayPal. And another one called Visible Risk in the cyber risk and assessment space, which we uh, sold to BitSight. And in the last couple of years, been thinking a lot about the future of consumer finance, the future of American households. And several years ago, partnered with a great individual named Daniel Marcus to build April and help Americans leverage tax to have better financial outcomes. If we look back at the early part of your career, did you always know eventually you would go into tech and go into starting and building tech companies? So I actually started my career as a founder. When I was at NYU, I started my first company. It was called Published. Uh, we were backed by a first mark partner that had funded us out of his uh, salary at NYU and had gone on and raised some venture money and was actually parallel processing uh, my economics and business degree at NYU while running a venture-backed company. So I was literally like taking an Uber to a customer meeting or an investor meeting and then going back to class and finding a way to pass my uh, midterm. You could imagine my parents felt very good about paying NYU tuition while I was trying to do something else, which created a, an interesting discourse. And and so I'd seen how hard that was up close and eventually made the decision to turn down more institutional money. And then eventually that's how I ended up at Deloitte. And, and a lot of the reason I ended up at Deloitte was because I recognized how difficult enterprise sales were. And so I went there really to learn about the enterprise and eventually continue my entrepreneurial journey. When it comes to founders that inspire you, who comes to mind? I think the exciting thing is that there are so many different folks out there to pick from. A lot of the, you know, kind of well-known founders that have either pioneered industry and are, you know, now on Twitter or X kind of that, you know, the Elon Musk of the world and, and others that you certainly have to kind of be in awe of to some extent. I think I've been really fortunate where a lot of the best founders that I've learned from um, are the ones that I've gotten to work with really closely. So some of those have been like Amir Zilberstein, who built a company called Clarity in the industrial security space, really hard space to build in. You're talking about reverse engineering, complex protocols for industrial systems built by Siemens and Schneider. And I had the opportunity to work with him a bit at Teammate when uh, he was building Clarity, now a multi-billion dollar company in the industrial security space. And now in April, you know, been working with uh, the likes of Bernan Asia, who co-founded Etoro, and uh, Jeff. Crudderton from Acorns and, and Eli Braverman from Betterment and, and others and have the uh, fortunate opportunity to be surrounded by great fintech founders as well who have pioneered a lot of sort of fintech 1.0, building some of those applications like Acorns and, and Betterment and eToro. And 
going through the hardship of pioneering regulatory pathways or technology pathways that didn't exist at the time and learning from them in a way that really informs the way that we're building here in April. How do you define FinTech 2.0? I think we may actually almost be in FinTech 3.0 in some ways. And maybe I'll talk about the trajectory, right? Because I think 1.0 sort of was about these point solutions that created digital formats for things that were maybe not available to all kinds of people. And so those could have been bank accounts that were mobile and didn't have fees attached to them or investing accounts. And I think a lot of those things were developed in like the 08 to like 2013, 14, and have now are at scale. You think about the chimes and the acorns of the world. And then I think we've had, you know, sort of a second wave that was looking to be more holistic or to go into more uh, complex areas, whether that's in crypto or pop net worth and, and expand on that V1, maybe call it V1 and a half. And I think one big bet in April was for V2 or V3, depending on how you want to look at it, was really all about intelligence and all about personalization. Uh, we're entering the age where most of financial services are, are going to be increasingly delivered online. And that means that consumers will increasingly expect that what they're seeing is completely contextual to them. And the reality is that most financial storefronts today that are digital don't service the customer in a particularly specific way to kind of treat them fairly generically and provide that bank account or a credit product. And so there's a lot of effort on the consumer's part of the household, the small business to stitch together all the different solutions that they need. And I think the world that we're moving towards is going to all about bundling and having holistic services that are provided to you that leverage software and AI to provide things that are highly contextual down to your specific needs. And so I think we're moving back from a world of distribution of scale of the huge digital platforms. And I think we'll see room for a lot of specialization and intelligence to better serve uh, more specific types of consumers, households, and small businesses. I think it's a perfect time to dive a bit deeper into what April's doing. So I know we've touched on that a little bit here, but let's just go back to the beginning at a very, very high level. What problem does April solve for customers? Yeah, so we have two customers. We're a B2B2C company. We our first customer, if you like, are our financial partner. So the likes of let's say like Acorns and, and Gusto that are partnered with April, and we sell them added tax products. And what that allows them to do is is offer a service to their customers that they couldn't previously offer. So that could be in the form of tax filing or it could be in the form of tax forecasting and providing visibility around what someone may owe in taxes today or becoming compliant and getting their refund faster. It allows them to offer a service that they otherwise couldn't and create a more holistic conversation with their client or their user around tax because tax is the largest expense item that most American families have on par with housing. It's also the largest single paycheck in the form of the tax refund that many Americans get back. And it's also, if you think about it, effectively a government-mandated financial health check, right? It's the only time per year that Americans have to kind of sit down and do a tabula rosa on, on what happened in the last year. And right now what's happening is that goes out of ether and what April facilitates in a compliant and trusted manner, the way to help these financial brands leverage tax to have a conversation with their customer around their holistic financial profile and better serve them. And so what we're doing for the consumer, for the taxpayer, is creating an embedded service that reduces the friction changes the cost structure, right? Everyone knows the TurboTax model where you're going to get upsold to death until they extract every last penny from you. We don't need to do that because we're embedded inside of an app that has your best interest in mind. It could be a platform, a payroll, 
platform, a banking app, and we can serve you in a way that leverages data that that platform already has and provides you a personalized experience in a more cost-efficient uh, manner. So we're looking to add value to that value chain, right? Uh, both to finance platforms and to taxpayers. And the idea is that we help them achieve better financial outcomes. And by achieving better financial outcomes, we can create a win-win situation where we, of course, get paid, but are also create a, a sum that's uh, greater than the parts. When it comes to the B2B side, can you give us an idea of the types of companies that you're seeing really adopt and embrace this? Yeah, I think we're seeing a wide array of adoption across different finance apps. I think the ones that you know we're focused on heavily today are in the banking credit space. And when you think about liquidity and you think about ways where either you're going to get a refund or you might owe money and making sure that you're staying ahead of that, or if you're a small business and you're you might owe quarterly estimates and making sure you have the liquidity and that you're staying compliant. Uh, seeing a lot of traction in that space, seeing a lot of traction in the investment category. So you, you, know, you can think about apps that are having conversations with their customers around life events. Well, what if you have a kid or you want to buy, save to buy a home, there's a lot of implications of those life events or the things that trigger that. And when those life events are happening, there's also be changes to your tax situation. And there's going to also be tax impact of those things where you have a child, you're going to get a credit for that. You're going to buy a home, maybe you can itemize some of that mortgage interest. And so having some kind of a visibility into tax that really doesn't exist in the marketplace today, right? It's really a black box. We're seeing a lot of adoption there and a lot of interest from tying those life events uh, to those tax scenarios. And then the third is going to be payroll, right? Because that's where folks get paid. That's where their paycheck is coming from. And we know that in in pay, there's a lot of uncertainty and complexity we have in the U.S. market, especially around what comes out pre-tax, about things like 401k or your IRA or health benefits. And then what's my take-home pay and how is that uh, going to fluctuate based on my, my tax situation? So we've recently launched a very exciting product with uh, Gusto that actually allows an employee on their platform to constantly track their tax situation in real time based on their Gusto payroll data. And they can actually update and change their withholding in order to ensure that they are compliant, but uh, saving the right amount of money that makes sense for their specific situation. When it comes to those first paying customers, if you reflect on that, how'd you pull that off? And the reason I ask that's something that all founders tend to struggle with is, is getting people to pay you money in the early days. Yeah, look, one of my, my mentors, Nadab, started uh, a teammate and you know previously led military intelligence for for the idea. That's a, he was a big sign in, in his office. And so when I joined teammate, there was about forty million AUM, and then about uh, twelve people. Now the firm, I think, is hundred people and uh, and about a billion under management. And he had this big sign in their office that the hardest part is getting started, right? And so that's kind of the advice to all founders: is like there isn't really a a secret sauce. I, I see out there, okay, you've got a growth hacket and that has advantages or you go through the network and that has advantages. I think you're a product of your circumstance. So you're often playing from what you have in the early days and each product and category is going to have a different way that makes sense. So I don't know that there's a right answer. I can tell you for us in April, you know, we're focused on mature financial companies that really value trusted relationships. And so we've surrounded ourselves with, with great cap table of investors from teammate and, and treasury and QED and NICA and others. And so we leverage my network, the network that we put around the table in order to build trust and relationships over time. And any of our customers uh, were either people that I already knew or that folks, you know, around the table already knew. When it comes to your market category, how do you think about the category that you're in? 
Yeah, so I think it's an interesting question, right? Because modern tax e-file, as they call it, is basically something that was invented only in the last couple of decades. And basically, the market construct today is the same players that have existed since the beginning of that market. And so what we call the DIY market, which is basically a self-serve market, is heavily dominated primarily by TurboTax as the dominant player you know, in that room. And you have other providers like Shawblock and Jackson Hewitt and TAC that are serving uh, customers directly. But TurboTax is by such a wide margin, the largest provider and extremely dominant today and leverages that dominant position. And they probably the other side of the market, right, of that 107 million taxpayers, 32 million small businesses, is primarily served by, by accountants. And a lot of those are mom and pop accounting shops that are powered by softwares provided by some of those same players and also the likes of like Reuters and Walter Spluer and, and, and others. And there hasn't really been you know, much innovation in that space you know, in the last couple of, of decades. And so when we look at the DIY segment, what we're planning is we're really finding alternatives to what Intuit has built. And part of that is there just isn't other providers. <laughs> like building tax software is hard. And so a lot of the friction or headwind, if you will, is just building something that consumers can use because you've got a federal tax law that's ballooned 350% over the last few decades. You have income tax in over 40 states. And so to build something at scale is got to raise a bunch of money. You have to put a team together that has different discipline and expertise from tax to engineering, product, and, and so forth. And then you also have to think about user acquisition because Intuit is just so dominant that they're going to outspend anybody that's out there, including some of those second and third players that I mentioned. And so you've got to come with a business innovation you know, that allows you to get distribution in a different way. And that's one of the things that we're focused on here in April. And one of the core competencies of the company is working with finance apps and platforms where we can be that tax alternative for them, right? Because it can be hard for them to partner with someone like a TurboTax that's not to be integrated and has their own interests in mind. And we can come kind of as that independent player, that's a true infrastructure provider, and in return, get distribution for a product that would otherwise be extremely expensive to market. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. I believe I read that in the coming year or maybe two years, the IRS is going to be rolling out their own filing system or a direct filing system, something along those lines. Is that going to have any impact to what you're doing? Is that going to make things easier and better for you? Is it going to take away potential customers? Uh, what impact will it have, if any? Well, I'll give you the kind of company take on it, and then I'll try to give you my, my personal view. I think as a company, what we believe is that taxpayers need more options. And any additional options in the market should be welcomed because we live in a capitalist society. And what that means is we should have free market competition and government should be able to compete in market. They should do it in a way that's fair. But I think, you know, we've seen that in healthcare where we've had programs and they provided alternatives. And I, I don't see why government shouldn't be able to provide an alternative and markets big enough that uh, maybe that works for some taxpayers. I think on a personal level, working with tax authorities, we would love that, that there was an equal emphasis on investing in their own technology that they and providers will will need to use to be successful. And when you think about data schemas and the testing mechanisms, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes to get compliant tax software to market. You know, there's a body called the NACTP that's just focused on 
representing the tax industry with these state and federal bodies. And I think our view is there needs to be more emphasis on that and upgrading the systems of improving service for taxpayers and for software providers. So, you know, we would, of course, always advocate uh, for that and, and helping get the best possible capabilities in the hands of, of American taxpayers and small businesses. Yeah, I think the reality is this is very hard to do. And, you know, we'll watch the IRS. I don't think we're particularly concerned about it. We, we have a very unique capability and infrastructure here in April that's second to not in the market. But I think it's a tall order that they've taken on and they will have to build it or partner with someone to help them uh, do so. And it's certainly not uh, trivial to do. Not sure if you want to have the conversation go there, but I want to also ask about TurboTax and some of the stuff I read, I think it was a, a couple of years ago, I think it was ProPublica did like a big investigative piece on them and their their lobbying and their efforts. What are your thoughts on that? Is, is that a real thing? Was TurboTax you know, really lobbying kind of on, in their own best interest that the, the harmed consumers or what was going on there from your perspective and from an insider perspective? I don't have any insider information that someone else doesn't have. So I, I read the report just like uh, you did and you know, I think obviously they were fined pretty significantly. So, you know, if you look at the model, what they try to do, and this goes back to this free file alliance concept, and that's related if we want to get a little more specific to this IRS direct file, because for years there's been a mechanism called free file for Americans to qualify and are under the income threshold to file for free. But the problem is that if you're a company, you got to make money somehow so that, you know, it doesn't really serve a business purpose. And then you know, the other challenge, I think a lot of the software in there, you know, wasn't competitive in market and consumers were willing to pay for a better product, which, you know, makes sense. I don't know that there's something out there that says people need to get a service for free. I think certainly taxpayers need to have options. And also, I think when you look at, and when you don't have options, you, you often get gouging. And so I think when you look at Turbo, it's been a case of there being basically a monopoly or oligopoly that has both a distribution and a product that others can't and don't have. Uh, at least today, and they're taking advantage of the situation and relating to this free file or file for free, and then people get in the door, and that's their model. It's an upsell model. If you look at their investor day, they're talking about how they're using AI and things to improve their ability to upsell. So that's what they do, and you know, obviously they were fined and continue to be investigated for certain you know things that they did, and you know that's in the eye ultimately of the regulators and the authorities on that. But uh, what I would say here in April is, you know, we don't do that. We believe that what the customer sees is the price that they pay. And the challenge in tax is that you have all of these different forms and its complexities. And at one point, probably a correlation between the amount of money you earn and how complex your taxes are. But now that's gone, right? You can have someone who traded crypto, $50 worth now needs, you know, capital gains forms. You can have someone that's driving for Uber, guess what? Now they're a small business, they need this thing called a Schedule C. That person might be making $35,000 a year, great American, had good intent, and now they go to file their taxes and they're like, wait a minute, so because of the type of job that I work and because I tried to invest for my future or you know buy a financial product, I now have to pay way more in tax. That's not something that people necessarily understand and it's not necessarily fair. And when we say fair, what we mean is you know, people should be able to operate within the confines of, of, you know, income and, and life and, and have a way to understand what they're, you know, going to pay when they need to file their taxes, right? So if I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm transacting and I'm going to buy more stock, like it should be fairly easy to know, like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to have to pay more when I go to file my taxes. And right now that's just kind of hard to do in the market. And so we believe having more of a flat fee model where 
what you see is what you pay is really the best thing for the consumer. And there's not a reason why you also can't have a great business in the process. And so that's kind of what we're pushing more towards here at April. Are there any numbers you can share that highlight the growth you're seeing? Yeah, I can say we're, you know, as far as publicly, we're seeing dozens of companies on the on the platform. We have hundreds of thousands of users and we're also seeing a lot of, you know, validation both in the form of like NPS, you know, that's in the high 50s and 60s and high customer satisfaction with our, our support and also our ability to execute because this is a really hard problem to solve. It's not trivial to have a national filing app. And so I think for us, a lot of it is also showing partners and, and ourselves that the tech feasibility is legit. When it comes to marketing, what are you doing to rise above the noise? Hey, look, it's a noisy market out there, right? There's just a plethora of noise on almost every platform. And so I think for us, what we're doing is, is two things. One is investing heavily in our brand and making sure that our buyers have a way to learn and find out about us and trying to be creative in the ways that we get in front of them. I think if you're paying I think the days of like CAC arbitrage on Facebook or some of these other platforms are unfortunately kind of gone. I'm not saying that there aren't pockets of places or very smart growth hackers that are finding niches there. But I think especially in a category like tax that has very saturated marketing, it's very difficult. And as a brand, we're really trying to stand for more than tax. We're really trying to stand for financial outcomes and how can typical American small businesses leverage tax to get ahead the same way that wealthy people do? Because that's the name of the game, right? Very wealthy people have teams of people, they can extract tax laws, they can understand things in real time. And most of us don't have the time, we don't have the resources. And that's how April is seeking to leverage the playing field. And so for us, it's we're solving tax, but it's actually a much bigger prize. And we stand for something much broader than that. And from a consumer perspective, this is our model by distributing through finance platforms. And you know, there we do substantially less marketing. We had, try to have a clear brand that you know, a taxpayer can understand what April is very clearly, but we don't do a lot of marketing there. We really rely on our partners to market to a captive audience that they already have. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 40 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? You know, I've been in this venture market for a long time, now north of a, of a decade. I've been on the investor side, on the entrepreneurial side. And I think the most important part in the end, to the extent you can, is try as best possible to surround yourself with great people. Because the, the ride is always going to be unpredictable and there's always going to be unexpected things, both that go better and worse or different than what you expect. And the constant is really going to be the people that you surround yourself with. And I can't emphasize that enough to founders, you know, is, is to not everybody's in the position and sometimes you have to take a check and that sometimes is what it is. But uh, the biggest thing is the people. At the end of the day, you're, you're buying a business partner and those people are going to be with you for the journey of the company. And so to the extent that you can find like-minded people who will challenge you, and help you build a great business, but also complement your skill set and have a shared set of values and are really there to do the job, it makes a tremendous difference as an entrepreneur. What do you think's been the most important decision you've made so far for the company? Uh, it's trite, but it's the co-founder, right? It's that setup of going through that process and who you're going to work with. Again, you, it's the constant, right? Because you can adapt, you can pivot. And you know many things, if you go back and you look at our plan from early 2021, before we started the company, high level, like many things are roughly what we thought they would be. There's many, many changes, of course, we, we've made iterating within them, but uh, it's much, much harder to change co-founder. And when I've seen things go south for many of the companies I had invested in, a lot of the times it had to do with the co-founder pair. And sometimes it's because there's a falling out and sometimes it's just because the relationship isn't in a place where it can be constructive to the business. And so I think I've been, you know, Daniel's not just a great talent, he was the CTO of Waze, the lead data scientist for Google Israel, but he's also a bench 
and a wonderful human and someone that compliments me very, very well and knows how to challenge me, but also push back in places where he needs to. And so I think that that give and take with a partner is is paramount and you, you kind of can't unselect it. I'm not saying there aren't companies that, you know, have co-founders that, that leave or, you know, uh, can't recover from it, but that is that thing that sets you up just for, for years and it impacts every other decision you, that you're going to make. From a go-to-market perspective, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to a founder based on everything you've learned so far? It's a good question, you know, because I'm kind of in the weeds on my very specific uh, challenge here. So it's kind of hard to give generic advice. I think what I've always found is like, and in some ways it's kind of at odds. I think you've got to be willing to try lots of things, but on the same time, you've got to have real focus and discipline. And and so what you end up with is like, if you try too many things in too many places, you find you, you get spread too thin. So like in our case, like, you know, you can try different marketing messages, you can try different sales tactics, you can try different product positioning, but like, you've got to probably pick a number of verticals that you're like willing to spend time in because otherwise like the product team gets too stretched or you're in so many different places that you can't possibly like, you know, garner data that's going to be valuable in a focused manner. But at the same time, like you've got to give yourself enough shots at success. And so I think like a lot of the early days in the startup are that balance of trying to give yourself enough shots at success and trying enough things, but, but also maintaining a very strict and disciplined manner about the sequencing and the scope of those activities. Final question for you. Let's zoom out into the future. So let's say three to five years from today, what's the big picture vision that you're building? The big picture for April is that whenever the U.S. taxpayer, individual, small business is going to transact, they can get complete clarity about the impact to their taxes. And if we do that correctly, that means that we will have embedded tax visibility across many different layers of finance, but it also will mean that we figured out how to help finance platforms and their users be served holistically. And if we do those things, U.S. consumers will be significantly better served than they are today from a financial services perspective. And we will also have more profitable and more valuable finance platforms. Amazing. I love it. All right, Ben, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's founders listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where do they go? You can always drop me an email at ben at getapril.com. That's going to be the easiest way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Brett. Really appreciate it. No problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 